This is the Oanda Podcast. Brought to you by Jazz FM's Business Breakfast. Welcome back to the Oanda Market Insights Podcast, brought to you with the Jazz FM Business Breakfast. I'm Johnny Hart. Each week I'm joined by Oanda Senior Market Analyst Craig Earlham to review the stories that made the business and market headlines as well as look forward to the business week ahead. And it was another dramatic week. We want to further strengthen this trade relationship to the benefit of all American and European citizens. This is why we agreed today to work together towards zero tariffs, zero non-tariff barriers, and zero subsidies on non-auto industrial goods. Thank you. It's the job of Michelle and myself to focus on coming up with the compromises with the necessary flexibility and pragmatism. And we, I feel, through the proposals we've set out and the movement we've made to date, have shown our willingness. And I think if we continue with that vein, solving problems, resolving outstanding issues with energy, with enthusiasm, with goodwill on all sides, we'll get there. In the second quarter of this year, the United States economy grew at the amazing rate of 4.1%. We're on track to hit the highest annual average growth rate in over 13 years. And it's a very good afternoon to Oanda Senior Market Analyst Craig Earlham. How are you doing? I'm very good, mate. Very good. It's uh, everyone's favourite time of the week yet again, and the sun's shining, so it's all good. The sun is shining, but it's too darn hot, as the song goes. It was a very interesting week. Plenty going on. What was your market moment of the week? Yeah, we're really spoilt for choice this week, actually. There's, there's a number of things I could have chosen, and we're going to touch on a number of different topics uh, throughout the course of the podcast. But for me, it has to be the meeting between Trump and Juncker. I think people's expectations going into this were quite low. Um, Juncker had even previously said himself he wasn't going over here with an, uh, a trade agreement in mind or planned. It was more of a discussion. I think we were expecting maybe some niceties at the end. But ultimately, I think it was always going to be tough to achieve anything of substance. What has come from it, though, is very surprising. And from a positive perspective, we've been talking for months now about trade conflicts escalating. And it seems like what we've actually seen on this occasion for once is a de-escalation. And the markets have really responded positively to that. But he came away, Jean-Claude Juncker, seemingly having cajoled Donald J. Trump into a, a remarkable climb down. But mainly by promising to do things that the EU has been planning to do for years. Yeah, it's quite interesting. This seems to be one of those outcomes where both sides have got exactly what they wanted out of this, and therefore it looks like a win-win situation. From Trump's perspective, the headlines were reading, the EU offers concessions to Trump to avoid a trade war. From the EU's perspective, they have avoided a trade war. Now, whether these concessions have much substance is almost irrelevant, because as always in these situations, it's about how the spin that really matters. Now, Trump has said that they've offered to buy more soybeans. Well, that's a thinly veiled dig at China, if I've ever seen one, because they are a big buyer of US soybeans and this is uh, one of the things that tariffs were slapped on in order to try and punish the US and to punish soybean producers. They've also said that they'll buy more liquid natural gas from them. Again, this is a dig that Trump was making against Germany because they were buying so much off of Russia. These are very specific examples of things that the EU has promised to buy more from the US But ultimately, it's funny that this isn't something that Juncker really has that much control over. These are things that already have very low tariffs on, and even the removal of them doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to see more purchasing. And also, there was talk of licenses on LNG. But again, this doesn't necessarily mean people are going to buy it from the US, because... 
I believe the stat I read today was that US liquid natural gas is 20% more expensive than that from Russia. So price is still going to play a major factor in this. But again, it's the spin that matters. And going into the midterm elections, Trump can say, we have gained concessions from the EU and the EU is a massive trading partner. The two blocks alone make up more than 50% of global GDP. This is a win. A vote for me is a vote for more concessions. How does this affect the UK's negotiations with both the EU and Donald Trump. I think it's really difficult to say at this stage because we are talking about two massive trading blocks. Like I say, more than 50% of GDP between the two. They have to take each other very seriously. So these concessions which have been offered on both sides, it seems is necessary to avoid something which could be potentially catastrophic. Now, I don't mean to downplay the UK. The UK, as an individual country, is, to an extent, a powerhouse. We know this. The financial services sector is a massive sector on the global stage. However, the importance of the UK compared to the EU27, as it will become known, as a bloc, is far less uh, significant. So, rather than being two big characters standing up against each other... We have to acknowledge, accept that we are a smaller character and that is why we are seeing these kind of uneven negotiations where the UK offers a concession, the EU doesn't really necessarily offer one back and even recently with this white paper that Theresa May set out, the words, the language that was coming from Michel Barnier wasn't in any way a signal of future concessions. If anything, he just threw them out again and it seems that this is the way it's going and this is why Brexiteers are getting so infuriated by the process. Although for Remainers... It illustrates, doesn't it, the importance of being in a big block. When it comes to these negotiations, being in a big block is very advantageous because it does give you extra leverage that is needed to try and gain concessions. But of course, to keep this uh, uh, argument balanced, it does also come with negatives as well because it means that when you're trying to secure these trade uh, agreements with the US or with the uh, with China for example it means that you have to satisfy 27 other members in order to get this deal passed so while a deal may look great to you you could spend another eight years negotiating something so that every other member of every other block and as we saw with the Canadian deal you can have one area of Belgium which is holding up this entire trade deal so there are advantages but there are disadvantages as well. We mentioned Michel Barnier earlier, Craig, and of course, let's turn to Brexit in full. And uh, he has dismissed the customs proposal, says the European Union will never accept a plan for a bespoke customs deal. This was in his uh, press conference with Brexit Secretary Dominic Raab. It certainly killed off uh, the key element of the Prime Minister's white paper, and which has been feared by the British side for some weeks now. His comments after his second meeting with Dominic Raab uh, mean the EU has effectively vetoed proposals for a future arrangement that would allow Britain to strike free trade deals while keeping uh, frictionless trade across the Channel and Irish border. It's not been a good week for the UK from that point of view, has it? No, I mean, I think everything you highlighted there shows some of the problems that we do have in these negotiations. Like I said, the language that we hear from Barnier at times can be quite confrontational. And if anything, it drives resentment, particularly among Brexiteers who are saying this is meant to be negotiation and we're being treated in this manner. This is why we are leaving. So I don't think it's overly helpful, the the language he can sometimes adopt, although it's always this language that makes the headlines, not some of the nicer things that he says uh, as well. In terms of this specific example, this is one of the key complex issues which what is which makes this negotiation in particular so difficult because I can completely understand both sides. Theresa May's team has tried to come up with a way in which we can get around this customs deal 
in order to satisfy all sides and uh, abide by the Good Friday Agreement, not cause uh, a hard border to go up in between Northern Ireland and Republic of Ireland. And it seems to make sense that we go along these lines. But then equally, you hear what Michel Barnier says, and it makes complete sense as well. Why would they allow uh, a non-member country to collect tariffs and taxes on its behalf a country that doesn't have any oversight and rejects oversight of the ECJ. It doesn't make any sense from their part. So clearly it's a, a good start, but it's not ideal for either side. To be fair to the UK, the situation is is very, very bespoke, isn't it? When you consider the situation with Ireland and Northern Ireland and the frictionless border problems, um, if you took that out of the equation, this would be a hell of a lot easier. Oh, it, it would be so much easier, but unfortunately that's not the world we live in, and unfortunately this wasn't made clear prior to the actual referendum itself. Cause you no, nobody whether... mentioned Northern Ireland, did they? No, it's quite incredible that this is the ma- major sticking point in all of this. Like you say, if this Northern Ireland, Republic of Ireland thing, uh, it situation didn't exist... I think that these things would be running a lot more smoothly. Now, that's not to say the negotiations would be easy by any stretch, but it feels like we've been talking about nothing but the Northern Irish border for about a year now, and we still don't have a solution. This is an extremely complex issue. It's one that I'm struggling to see how it's resolved, and ultimately, while I appreciate how much work is going in on our side to try and find a solution, and I'm hoping that once a solution can be found, because I don't want to think of what the alternative will be, You have to respect the reasoning behind why these options keep getting rejected by the EU. From their perspective, nothing is more important than the integrity of the customs union and the single market. And if anything happens as part of this agreement, which causes problems to that integrity, then it calls into question the entire situation itself that they have set up for a very specific purpose. This is not a case right now of the EU trying to punish the UK. I think that's going to happen anyway as part of the trade negotiations. But this is not a case of that. This is about protecting what has been set up very carefully over a number of years. I think there is a bit of that, though, isn't there? The the idea that they really are angry and hurt, like the divorce that everybody talks about. It does feel very similar. It It does feel very similar, but they are not rejecting it out of spite. I don't think they're trying to be very helpful either. They're not coming up with ideas of their own. They're very much leaving it to us because we are the ones that voted Brexit. Therefore, we should be the ones to find a solution that ultimately is a problem that's on within our country. So I can understand there is clearly some resentment there. And like I say, it's not very helpful. But equally, you cannot blame them for rejecting the proposals that have been put forth so far. So while we've been on air, Craig, uh, we've had the latest US GDP numbers and they've grown at a pretty solid pace of 4.1% in the second quarter. That is the best since 2014, certainly boosting hopes that the economy is ready to break out of its uh, decade-long slumber. Yeah, these are very impressive figures. 4.1% growth in the second quarter, we have to be happy with. I think it's also worth remembering, though, that we have to take GDP growth in the US over the stretch of the whole year because what we're looking at here is an annualized figure of second quarter growth. In the first quarter, it was about half that. So we're not talking about 4% every single quarter right now. And if we get to the end of the year and the average is out to about 3%, we have to be pleased. So, But we can't get too carried away with this one quarter of growth. That said, the US economy is clearly booming right now. Unemployment is extremely low. We're seeing decent growth figures. We're seeing good PMI figures. We're seeing good 
numbers from across the board really and now we are in earnings season and we're seeing strong corporate figures with growth in the first quarter more than 20 percent earnings uh, growth in the first quarter and we're seeing more than 20 percent on course for right now for the second quarter as well so it seems that america as a whole is doing well and of course that is also being helped a lot by the uh, the tax reforms which you saw at the back end of last year Let's talk about a company that isn't doing very well. Shares in Facebook have plunged uh, this week as uh, investors reacted to negative signs that the uh, social media giant's uh, user and revenue growth has significantly slowed down. The stock, I think, dropped around about $120 billion and dragged down other tech stocks as well, uh, Twitter and Snap. It's not been a great week, has it, for the tech uh, sector? Yeah, I mean, I think this the numbers that we saw from Facebook really stood out to me to show what impact, real impact, the Cambridge Analytica and uh, Russian interference in the US election scandals have actually now had on trust in the brand because user growth has, of course, slowed quite a bit and was well below analyst expectations. They expect similar uh, things to happen in the coming quarters, which is a big concern for analysts because what we've seen in the tech sector for quite a while now is very large growth being automatically priced in because of the exceptional growth we've seen in previous quarters. So this is a bit of a worrying sign. And like I say, in aftermarket hours yesterday, we were seeing Facebook down around 25%. That is a staggering fall. I don't think it's necessarily representative across the industry. We've seen Twitter report numbers today, which are also very concerning. They're also doing a cleanup job on the platform in order to address issues related to spam accounts, etc., and also try and uh, ensure that it can remain trustworthy to consumers because I think that's such a massive thing right now. Trust in these social media platforms is hugely, hugely important in the aftermath uh, of those scandals. If people don't trust that their data is being used correctly or that they are being manipulated, they are not going to use the platform. There are so many different platforms which people can choose from right now. They don't need to rely on just one. The other numbers that we've seen this week have been a lot better, though. We look at Google and um, or Alphabet, as we should call them. Now, uh, I think I'm still stuck in the old school ways. Uh, we look at Marath- Alpha- Marathon or Snickers. <laughs> I'm still a Snickers man myself, but uh, uh, yeah, I'm also a man. I'm also Opal Fruits, so uh, I'm not completely modern. Um, yeah, I mean the other the other results have been much better. Alphabet reported earlier in the week, and we saw extremely strong growth here um, in terms of advertising and uh, uh, and web services. And Amazon as well reported on Thursday, and again we saw around fifty percent growth in uh, in Amazon web services as well. So this is the the cloud the cloud um, offering that they have. I mean, these are exceptional, exceptional numbers uh, and will, I think, continue to stimulate the FANG stocks in general. But Facebook has some issues which it now has to deal with and it has clearly not just lost some of the trust of consumers but also of, uh, of investors as well. OK, let's briefly look to the week ahead. It's going to be another busy week, actually, considering we're approaching summertime for, for many people. A lot of uh, investors and those in the markets will be going on their very expensive holidays, I'm sure. But all eyes will be on the Bank of England, certainly towards the end of the week, and the Fed as well. We've got so much to look forward to next week. I think the standout event is has to be the Bank of England. The Bank of England meets on Thursday. It seems that markets are quite convinced that we are going to see an interest rate hike now for two reasons, really. One, the vote from the last meeting was 6-3, to three, so the margin had closed with Andy Haldane joining Michael Saunders and Ian McCafferty in voting for a rate hike. We've seen decent data from the PMIs since then. The rhetoric we've had from different uh, central bankers as well hasn't 
told us that market interpretations of this are incorrect and that's despite the fact that retail sales and cpi data was very disappointing so this has led us to believe that we are almost banking now on a rate hike in the uk next year and this will take us to the highest interest rate levels at 0.75 percent since 2010 i think i mean there's an entire generation of people that don't know what interest rates above 0.5 percent are like and personally i'm actually one of them it's it is quite staggering Aside from that, we've also got the Federal Reserve, a little-known central bank, who's also making an interest rate announcement. No interest rate hike expected here. The next one's expected in September, so I expect to hear plenty of rhetoric there. And again, people are looking for the intricacies of this report. So what does the Fed think about the uh, recent developments on the trade war side of things, etc.? We've also got the Bank of Japan next week. There's been a lot of speculation over the last week that they may look to not tighten their monetary policy but remove a little bit of accommodation so that could be something as simple as increasing the yield which you'll accept on 10-year japanese bonds from zero percent to 0.1 this is a tiny tiny move and it's probably not likely to come anytime soon but we could start to see a willingness to allow that um, in one of the coming meetings so that's three massive central bank decisions we've also got the u.s jobs report next week Probably the most uh, widely followed economic report that we get each month. That's coming on Friday, so uh, just uh, another one to add into the mix there. And on top of that, we've got 135 S&P 500 companies all reporting earnings on the second quarter. Next week is not going to be a bad week. Well, whoever is in the hot seat next week, and I think it's going to be Nick Howard, because I'm off on my holidays for a while, and possibly you. Yeah, maybe me, maybe not. It depends if uh, if my uh, lovely fiance decides to give birth or not. Oh, well, you could be a dad this time next week. That is exciting stuff. Terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> Craig Earlham, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And don't forget, you can download this podcast on iTunes and on Android. And don't forget to leave us a review and tell us what you think. Have a great week. From the team behind Jazz FM's Business Breakfast, a daily early morning 30-minute briefing for the day ahead. On air from 6am. Listen to Jazz FM on DAB, online or just ask Alexa.